We're reading this morning from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25 through to the end. 1 Samuel 17. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make him his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, "I, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle 
is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire whose boy this is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Thank you, Peter, for reading the Word of God. This is a very familiar passage to us. Uh, as I said in previous weeks, uh, this is a chapter, if, if you don't even go to church, you're probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Now, we've been sitting in this chapter for a number of weeks, and last week we asked the unaskable question, and the question was this, might David have an evil heart? We say that's the unaskable question because of course we know that David was a man after God's own heart. We think we know what that means and we draw all kinds of conclusions about that. And the question that we asked last week is, might he have had an evil heart? Now this week, in direct contrast to last week, we will be watching and exploring the faith of David in spectacular action. So last week we were asking, does this man have an evil heart? And this week we're saying, behold the faith in action of this man, which absolutely begs the question, can a man with an evil heart exercise authentic faith? tough question. That's a deep, probing, theological question. And I am intentionally not resolving the tension for you because this chapter does not resolve the tension for us. And, and one of the things that we like to do is to tidy everything up right away. But what we must do is read to the end of the book. And not just the end of 1 Samuel, but to the end of the Bible to sort of understand all of these things and to try to put them together. How might David, who, who perhaps has an evil heart, at least was born with an evil heart himself, says it, that he was conceived in sin like the rest of us. How can a man like that exercise this kind of faith. Well, the Old Testament 
is written ambiguously, meaning it's not always clear. And, and what we don't want to do is to try to saw off or round off, shave down those rough edges because it's those rough edges in Scripture, uh, as I said, where the theology emerges. It's where you can't quite put the two things together, like free will and predestination. How do those two things fit together? Well, it's in the struggle to understand the biblical witness to both ideas that a true and glorious theology emerges. Same is true here. How can a man with an evil heart exercise faith? Now, I know the, the reform systematic answer. It, he can't. He must be regenerate. But we're already into Romans. And here we're sitting in 1 Samuel. I know it's frustrating, isn't it? The preacher just won't answer my question. <laughs> But that's what we're going to be doing through this whole series is causing this tension to endure and we're going to explore it together. What do we normally do with this chapter? We allegorize it, don't we? Perhaps you've been in a, a sermon or a Sunday school class where you say, well, this chapter, I don't know what to make of it, but David is looking pretty good here. He's saying all of the right things. He's doing all of the right things. I don't really have a giant to kill, though. So what we do is we allegorize it and say, well, actually you do. We all have our Goliaths. We all have our giants to slay. And if you just have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God Almighty, then you can slay your giants. And, and we can name our giants, right? We come up with all kinds of abstract things or some real things. We say, with faith, you can overcome that obstacle in your life. With faith, you can overcome that hurdle. Now, before we get to a deeper reading of this chapter, I want you to hear this. That's not altogether a bad reading. There is some truth to that, that with faith... We can overcome great obstacles. And so I don't want to be dismissive of that. I, I, I think that there is some application that we can derive along those lines. At the same time, if this is as deep as we get, then we've missed the point. That's not originally why this was written. So while that may be an acceptable interpretation of this chapter, that there's no heresy there, that's not the depth of this chapter, that's not really the point. That's not what the author was doing inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this chapter in the Bible. So today I hope I'll be able to, again, just open the door for you. I can't get into all the details. I just don't have time. I mean, we could sit in this chapter for months. There's so much there. But I hope to open the door enough that then with you, yourself, with the Lord, your Bible, and the, your family, you can explore this at greater depths. Why don't we invite God to help us to understand what it is he wants us to know from this chapter. Let's pray. God, I, I pray that you would help me to speak faithfully according to your word. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would facilitate my speech so that you would minister to each person here according to their unique need. Every one of us has a different understanding or level of understanding of this chapter. We're, we're familiar with it, probably all of us. If there's some of us who have never read it, I pray, especially for those. But God, by your Spirit, help us to understand this and help us to, to go deeper into your word that we might bask in the glory of your scriptures and see Jesus. 
with greater clarity, even while the scriptures themselves become more ambiguous. Build up this church and bring great glory to your name. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This chapter, as I've said, is often called David and Goliath. It could as equally be called David and Saul. And and this is the deeper point. I'll give it to you at the beginning. We're going to explore it. Uh, In this chapter, David is fighting two giants, not one. He's fighting both Goliath, which is very physical and tangible, and more subtly, more politically, He's fighting Saul. See, there are two great obstacles before David in this chapter. In chapter 16, he's been anointed to be king. How is he going to become king? There's already a king on the throne. Well, Goliath is one obstacle that if he could fell Goliath and slay him, that would take him one step closer to his goal of becoming king. But there's still the greater challenge, the greater giant in the chapter actually is not Goliath but Saul. How is David going to become king so long as Saul sits on the throne? And so in this chapter, David slays Goliath and he slays Saul. Two giants with a single stone. Let's take a look at Saul and Goliath to start. Saul and Goliath are twinned in this narrative. And this is not the the last time that the author is going to do this. When you get to 1 Samuel 25, just in case you're reading ahead, and I encourage you all to be reading 1 Samuel because we're going to be spending some time here. When you get to 1 Samuel 25, I'll just give you a little hint, Nabal is twinned with Saul as well. So, So there are these men that are written in ways, and we see the way in which David interacts with them, and what we are supposed to glean from that is that is how David is also simultaneously, in a more subtle way, but a very real way, interacting with Saul. Now, you don't believe me? Let me, let me show you some of the reasons I would make that claim. Number one, one of the ways that the author connects Goliath and Saul is their height. In 1 Samuel 9-2, we read this, from his shoulders, that's Saul's shoulders, upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul has been introduced to us as a giant in Israel, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Goliath, in 17-4, we're told, had a height of six cubit and a span, which is about nine foot nine. So these are two tall men, one tall man from the Philistines, one tall man from Israel. Which brings us to our second point, the taunt. When, when Goliath goes out onto the field, just go back to verses eight and nine. This is what Goliath says. He shouts to the ranks of Israel and he he says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? It seems that Saul's height was known also to the Philistines. And so when, when Goliath goes out onto the field, he's taunting Israel, but more specifically, he's taunting Saul. Do you not, O Israel, have a champion in your ranks like me? Am I not a Philistine? And do you not have a man like me named Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. So so in the way that that is worded, what Goliath is asking is, send me your king. 
And I will do hand-to-hand combat against him. If we defeat your king, then you will serve us. And if you defeat me, we will serve you. Third way that the author links Goliath and Saul is in this motif. We'll talk about motifs in a second of the armor. We get a description of Goliath's armor in verses 5 to 7. That's very rare. In Hebrew narrative, you very rarely get a physical description. Every time you have a physical description in the Bible, it's very important. It's not a throwaway thing. You know, Charles Dickens was paid by the word. And so he describes all manner of things that are not germane to the story. He, he will describe everything so you get a really good picture, but it doesn't really matter what he's describing. He's just paid by the word. Well, the author of the Bible wasn't getting paid by the word. If the author of the Bible, inspired by God, writes something down, it's because it's important. Why is it important to know that Goliath has this armor? Well, one reason we already know is that it makes him look impressive. It sets the tone to help us to feel like, well, David's going out there without armor, so, so he, uh, this is further in the chapter, so we feel that D- Goliath has the advantage over David. But that's not the real base reason. We're told here that, he ha- that, uh, that Goliath has a helmet of bronze. We are told that he has a coat of mail. So that's this armor that goes over you, so that if you get hit, unless it's really strong with a lot of force, it'll You'll be okay. You might get bruised, but you won't die. And the third thing, which is often overlooked, is that he has a javelin. If you flip over to 1 Samuel 17, verses 38 and 39, we get a description of Saul's armor. In these verses, we find out that Saul also has a helmet of bronze. Saul also has a coat of mail. We don't get told about the javelin, not yet, but what do we find out about Saul in uh, coming chapters, if you've read ahead? Saul tries to kill David a couple of times, and what is his weapon of choice? A javelin. Just as Goliath is going to try to kill David with a javelin, so later we find out that Saul is going to try and kill David with a javelin. Now, we don't know that in this chapter, but when you get just that moment when Saul is trying to pin David to the wall with his javelin, all of a sudden you have an aha moment, and you say, well, hold on a minute. I have to go back. I have to reread chapter 17 and recognize that Saul and Goliath are fulfilling a similar function in the story. They are both going to try to kill David. But what do we know about David from chapter 16? He's been anointed by God to be king. Therefore, we might conclude, David is untouchable. So the first thing that emerges from Saul's twinning of Goliath in this chapter is an expectation and is written in such a way that we ought to be expecting something of the plot. Now we are, again, so familiar with this chapter that we know that it's David and Goliath. It would be a lot different if you were reading the Bible for the first time and you came to a heading in your Bible that said Saul and Goliath, wouldn't it? Because you know that, that title for this chapter, David and Goliath, that's not inspired by God. That's what we've named the chapter. 
But there's an expectation, if you're reading this for the first time, that it should be Saul who goes out into the valley of Elah, perhaps with his bronze helmet on, his coat of mail. We find out later that he loves the javelin. Just take the javelin, Saul. Saul should have gone out. Saul is Israel's champion. You go back to chapter 8, and why did Israel want a king? To lead them in and out of battle, to be their military champion. Now Goliath comes and says, you wanted a champion to lead you in and out of war. Now send him forward. But he doesn't. We find out that all of the soldiers are afraid, and then there's this very noticeable addition, and Saul himself was afraid. Saul didn't go. Saul should have gone. That's the expectation. Now, this creates a power vacuum. And, and we have to sort of, you have to sort of th- get back into the mindset. What would you be thinking if for 40 days and 40 nights, the Philistine champion, who's their tallest soldier, is coming forward and says, send me your champion, your tallest, your king, and your king sits there doing nothing. There's a power vacuum. All of a sudden, there's an opportunity for someone to do something that the king ought to have done. Therefore, whoever challenges Goliath is stepping into Saul's social space, his position in Israelite society. They are stepping right to the pinnacle of the power chain And they're saying, I am at the top of this hierarchy. I am the alpha dog of this kingdom. And now this is especially true because ancient Israel was an honor-shame culture. Whoever steps out to do what the king ought to have done is publicly shaming Saul. And in an honor-shame culture, that is disaster. For the, def- for the leader. Whoever steps out into that social space becomes the de facto leader. Now knowing this and seeing what's going on, remember last week, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how David shows up and he's assessing the situation. What's going on here, boys? He sees Goliath come forward. He sees that everyone's afraid. He sees that Saul is not going out and he inquires, what's going on? And he finds out about a reward. But more than that, he sees an opportunity to step into what he perceives to be his rightful place. Was I not just anointed king? Did did Samuel not come and anoint me king? This is my chance to take by force the very thing that has been promised to me. Now in light of this, Eliab's words, which we looked at last week to David, make a little more sense. Eliab perceives that David is preparing to publicly shame Saul. Now, according to Eliab, and we don't need to agree with Eliab, but according to Eliab, this is an evil thing to do. You do not shame the sitting king. And it it helps us to begin to wonder, is that why no one else has stepped forward? Is that why Eliab himself hasn't stepped forward? Because there's another tall man in the Bible, and that's Eliab. In chapter 16, we find out that he's described very much like Saul. And if like Saul, then like Goliath. So if Saul is unwilling to go out to fight this giant, you look to your next tallest man, which is Eliab, at least as far as we know in the scriptures. And Eliab, for some reason, hasn't done it. Might he have scruples about publicly shaming the king? 
Well, we can't answer that. I just throw that out for you. That's a bonus. But how does the narrative explicitly illustrate David stepping into Saul's social space? To answer this question, we have to be on the lookout for what are called motifs. So a little break from interpreting for a moment. And again, another tool. We don't just want to give you fish. We want to give you the resources and the ability to fish for yourself. How do you read the Old Testament? You need to be looking for motifs. What is a motif? A motif is a repeated pattern or image that represents something more significant than itself. A motif is a repeated pattern or image that represents something more significant than itself. So you have to remember that while we absolutely believe that this is history, we also know that the one through whom God wrote this, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And just as a photographer, by choosing what to take a picture of, chooses what's in the frame and what's outside of the frame, that is, what will be in the picture and what will not be, as if it was never there, is up to the one who holds the camera. So also, the one who writes the account of this history is writing literature, sacred literature, inspired literature, historical literature, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author has to decide what to include and what not to include. And the things that are included help to make the point that God wants us to get. And so in writing this history, uh, the author makes use of motifs. So these are actual things that were actually present, but the way in which they're written about help us to interpret what is going on. So what's an example of a motif? Well, I've already given you one. Saul's armor and Goliath's armor. The, the bronze helmet is a motif. There's two men in this chapter that have a bronze helmet, Goliath and Saul. Put them together. There are two men in this chapter who, who have a coat of mail, Goliath and Saul. Put them together. There are two men in this book who like to carry a javelin, Goliath and Saul. Put them together. Those are motifs. You put them together and all of a sudden you start to see we should be thinking about Saul and Goliath together. Now, Saul's armor is a far more reaching motif, as we're going to see. So we can match Saul's armor with Goliath's armor, but we can also match Saul's armor with Jonathan's armor, which we're going to look at next week. So in the beginning of chapter 18, we're going to see that Jonathan, who is the crown prince, Saul's son, does something with his armor. That's for next week. But it will be interesting. The reason I mention it now, it is very interesting to see what David does with this motif of royal armor. David will, as we're going to see, reject the royal armor in chapter 17, but he will put on the royal armor in chapter 18. That's not just a throwaway detail. It's not as though, like, oh, oh yeah, David had some style, he didn't like... Saul's army, like John's army. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. But, but let's take a quicker or, or more deep look at David and Saul's armor. Because this is how David is going to slay Saul. By studying the motif then of Saul's armor, as we're going to transition now, this chapter begins to look a lot more like Saul and David 
or David and Saul, then David and Goliath. Take a look at verses 38 and 39. So David has persuaded Saul that he's going to go out and kill this giant. Verse 38, so then Saul clothed David in his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. First thing, and this is just total side note, but important for the development of David's characterization. David did not put off the armor because they were too big for him, which tells us something about David's size. David also is a big man. Why, back to the point, why did Saul want David to wear his armor? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If you have asked yourself that question, let me guess that the answer might have gone something like this. Well, Saul is just such a loving man. Didn't want anything to happen to David. So he wanted to make sure that David had the best possible chance on the battlefield. Maybe. I can't say that that's not his motive, because the Bible doesn't say. However, I'm a cynical man, and if I put myself into a shame honor culture on day 41, Saul knows that he should be going forward to fight Goliath, but he hasn't. Now he has someone who wants to go and fight. He knows that that will displace him in the hierarchy of Israelite society. And so, might it not be a good idea to bring this warrior into your tent, dress him in your armor, and send him to the battlefield while you stay in your tent. Why? Well, because Anderson Cooper wasn't alive back then. So Anderson Cooper couldn't have said, and now a new development, we have David putting on the king's armor. No, most of the men, they're spread out along the line. They're not that close to what's going on, and all they see is the king's armor going out to do battle. So I don't know, but it might have been that Saul wanted everyone to think that he defeated Goliath. And if it didn't work, if, if David died, well, at least Saul says, well, I tried to give him the best possible chance. It, it is sort of a win-win for Saul, I think, if you look at it that way. I can't prove it, but there you are. Now, why did David reject Saul's armor? As I already said, it's not because it was too big. He doesn't say, I can't wear this. It's, this is too big for me. And, and nobody else around, uh, I don't know how many were around, but Saul himself said, well, sizing it up, it'll probably fit. Come here, stand here. You're a little shorter, but, you know, pretty good. It's because, was it because he wasn't used to it? Was it because he did not want anyone to think that Saul was on the battlefield? Was it, if you want to go a little bit more deep into an analyzing this motif, and I think we have license to do this. We're supposed to ask these kinds of questions. The clothing often makes the man. It, is it because David is making a statement, at least to himself, or the writer is making a statement to us, that David is going to be a very different kind of king? You know the, the, uh, the phrase, you've got to walk a mile in someone's shoes before you really understand them? Well, David doesn't want to walk at all in Saul's shoes. He's going to be a very different kind of king. So he's not going to start 
by wearing Saul's clothes. He's got his own clothes. Different approach to reigning. So I, I can't answer the question for you. But what we do know is David says, thank you very much, no, king, I am not going to wear your armor. We'll pick this up next week when we look at Jonathan. But notice what weaponry David does pick up. Verse 40. David took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now we all know this, right? A sling is not a slingshot that just wouldn't have the, the oomph to it to actually do anything. It's a sling where you swing it around, you build up momentum, and then you release the rock, and it goes extremely fast. Now, a couple of things about this. Number one, and Malcolm Gladwell actually talks about this, I think, by and large, he has a point. The advantage on the battlefield does not go to Goliath, it goes to David for a couple of reasons. We already know that Goliath is big. We know that he's weighed down by a, a ton of armor. David goes out there without any armor and a sling. And let's just say that Goliath brought a knife to a gunfight. If, if we just change this to Goliath had a knife and David had a gun, who has the advantage? David does. So right from the beginning, David is going onto the battlefield and he's not in a lot of danger. He's got five chances to hit the giant secondly if he misses all five he could just run away who's going to catch him goliath isn't so that's the first thing but i think there's a greater symbolism going on here so yes the advantage goes to david so let's not think that david and goliath is this underdog overdog story the underdog in this story is goliath not david secondly the sling. There's great significance to this. If you go back to Judges, just listen. If you go back to Judges chapter 20, verses 15 to 16, listen to this. This was a civil war that broke out between Benjamin and the other tribes. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men. And these 26,000 men drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Why in Judges 20 are we given these two statistics? There's 26,000 men who draw the sword from Benjamin, and there's 700 men from Gibeah who were chosen. Well, verse 16. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. What we're told about these Benjaminites from Gibeah is they did not go into battle with a sword. 26,000 Benjaminites did go into battle with a sword, but 700 Benjaminites from Gibeah did not go into battle with a sword. They went into battle with a sling. Now, if you read closely in verse 40, chapter 17, 1 Samuel 40, 17, he took his staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
Somewhere it says <laughs> that he did not have a sword in his hand. You'll read through that and find it. That's very intentional. The writer of, of 1 Samuel 17 wants us to know David went onto the battlefield without a sword but with a sling, just like the, Gibe or the Benjaminites from Gibeah. You say, well, big deal. What, what is the connection? What tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. What city in Benjamin is Saul from? Gibeah. So David goes on to the battlefield in the same way that Saul and his ancestors would have gone on the battlefield, not with a sword, but with a sling and a stone. So had David practiced with a sling? I'm sure he had. He was a very good shot. But what David is doing is he is picking up Saul's traditional armor and weaponry and using it on the battlefield. So Saul says, where are my army? He says, no, I'm not going to go out there and let, let everyone think that it is you out there, but what I will do is remind them with this sling that you, O Benjaminite from Gibeah, should have gone on the battlefield with a sling just as your forefathers had. Saul then should have gone out on the battlefield against Goliath. And everyone, when they saw David go out, saw, that's not the king. And they saw, but he's got the king's weaponry. Why didn't Saul do that? Now you might protest and say that surely David is not intending this. This is a very dark reading of David's intentions. And how can you prove it? David is simply incensed about how this Philistine has defied the armies of the living God. He is going out there to save uh, God's reputation. He is going out there to exercise faith. I cannot deny it. There are wonderful things that David says. To this day you have defied the armies of the living God. I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air. David does some great things, and his remarkable faith, it did require some courage, although the advantage was to David. But I am positive, I am certain, and I'm going to prove it to you right now, that David had politics on his mind. That he was intentionally intending to display Saul by what he did on the battlefield. And I know that because of some often overlooked, unnoticed details at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 54. After he had hit Goliath with a stone and cut off his head, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. David's thinking politically. He's thinking ahead. He's thinking of the long game. Uh, two things from this. Number one, why would David take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem? What you need to know to answer that question is that at this point, Jerusalem does not belong to Israel. Jerusalem belongs to the Jebusites. It was an impenetrable fortress. During the conquest, uh, Josh, Joshua and, and the armies could not take Jerusalem. And so Jebus continued to exist in the middle of the promised land. And David 
thinking politically recognizes that Jerusalem is right on the border between Judah and Benjamin, the two most powerful tribes in the nation at that time. It's a lot like Ottawa, right between Ontario and Quebec. And that's why Queen Victoria picked it. David is thinking, you know what, Gibeah is not going to be a very good capital for me when I become king. Because that's the hometown of Saul, and that's where the capital was at this time in chapter 17. He says, I need a good capital. I need a central capital. I need a capital that can be the hub of life for this nation. I need a capital that brings this nation together. And Jerusalem is a good capital for that. Not only that, if I could take Jerusalem, it would be fortified forever. Who could take it? It's secure. It's the most secure city in the land. And so he says, I need to figure out how to take it. So why does he take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem? I will just suggest to you that this might be the answer. He walks up to the gates and he knocks. Do I have a story for you? And they let him in. And while he's there, he tells his story. But not only does he tell a story, but he looks for the weak spot. You know what he does later, after he becomes king? He takes the city by penetrating the city through the weak spot, which is the water shaft, which nobody knew about. The Jebusite water shaft. He says, who will go into Jerusalem up the water shaft? How did he know about the water shaft? He knew about the water shaft because he had taken the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. He's thinking politically. He's thinking ahead. Second thing, he put the armor of Goliath in his tent. Why? Well, he knows that he has just publicly shamed Saul. He knows that the reward stipulates that he will be invited into Saul's inner circle in the royal court. He knows he needs an exit strategy when it gets too hot. That's all I'm going to say about that because we're going to pick that up in a few weeks. But notice where David stashed the sword of Goliath. He's thinking politically. He's thinking ahead. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's taking the kingdom for himself. Now in light of all of this, Saul's inquiry at the end of the chapter makes much better sense. You know, this is always very confusing as you're r- rocking through the Bible and you're reading it and you're right into it and you, know, you get to uh, chapter 17, verses 55 to 58 and you say, what? I- in the previous chapter, I was just told that, that David was well known by Saul. He was his music therapist. He became his armor bearer, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so why is all of a sudden Saul asking questions like, who is this guy? David knows exactly who it was. Earlier in the chapter, we're told that David had been going back and forth, tending his father's sheep, which I take to mean that, you know, when Saul needed him, he would go and be the armor, or the armor bearer and or the music therapist, and then when he wasn't needed, he'd go back and he would be Jesse's shepherd looking after the sheep, back and forth. So you get to the end of the chapter, and you ask yourself, well, is Saul having a moment of absolute amnesia, or what's going on? Well, in light of, if, if you understand this chapter, in light of the honor-shame 
paradigm that we've talked about, if you understand that when David stepped out onto that battlefield with Saul's traditional sling in hand, that he was actually publicly shaming the king and taking his place at the top of Israelite society, then these verses make sense. The first thing that we have to notice about them is this, that it's a flashback. This doesn't happen chronologically in the chapter. Look at verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine. Now we had just read that he had killed the Philistine. He had cut off his head. He had taken his head to Jerusalem and stashed his armor in his tent. So this is a flashback. So this would, this would fit right in between verse 40 and 41. Which means that the writer puts this at the end of the chapter because the writer wants us to leave us with this idea in our minds. Now remember, chapters 16 and 17 is a double introduction to David. So this is what the last thing that, that the author wants us to know about David happens in these verses. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, it's important who he's talking to, Abner, the commander of the army. So his second in command. Abner, whose son is this youth? What is Saul asking there? He's not saying, who is this guy? He's saying, what's his lineage? Where does he come from? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. Now it's also important to know that Saul knows that Jesse is David's father. So he's not asking who is David's father. Whose son, meaning which of the patriarchs does this guy come from? What is, it, what is his tribal affiliation? He's not from Gibeah, is he? No. Why does he have a, Gib uh, uh, why does he have a sling in his hand? He's not a Benjaminite, is he? No. Well, what tribe is he from? As soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Now that, this is irony, because as he holds the head of Goliath physically in his hand, in his other hand he holds politically the head of Saul. He's totally decapitated Saul's kingship. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And Bethlehem is in Judah. Why is this important? There's that age-old question, why did God reject Saul and accept David? One, of, one answer to this is that David was from Judah and Benjamin, or Saul was from Benjamin, Way back in Genesis 49, filled with the Holy Spirit, Jacob put his hands on his 12 sons. And to Judah he says, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From his prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob prophesied that the Messiah, the king of Israel, would come from Judah, and the king of the Jews would be the king of all nations. Whose son are you? Because here is the blessing given to Benjamin, to Saul. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. What does that mean? A ravenous wolf the wolf makes an early kill. Uh, the wolf is alone in the morning with his kill. He can devour all he wants. It's all his. He started so well, but by the end of the night, he has to divide what he had caught and give it to others. Whose son is this? He's from Judah. Uh-oh. And it's at that moment when Saul saw David step onto the battlefield with a sling in his hand, he knew he had made a big mistake because he had put into the hands of a boy from Judah the keys of the kingdom. And from that point forward, he, like Goliath, will try to kill David. How do we evaluate this? Well, David killed Goliath in the Valley of Elah, an act of faith, there's no question. And by killing Goliath, David defeated Saul. We know that the Messiah will come from Judah, not from Benjamin. We know that David is furthering God's plan of salvation. So do we approve of what David did? What this chapter tells us, it shows us how the Messianic line rose to sit on the throne or do we disapprove of what David did? You know, it wasn't the underdog story. This wasn't just all faith. He had the upper hand. He was thinking politically. He had every confidence that he could pull it off. And, and we might even go into contingent realities and ask, what if David had stayed off the battlefield? Eventually, one would think Saul would have had to go on the battlefield. And might Saul have gone and tried to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with this giant? Might Saul have died in chapter 17? Then might David have become king in chapter 18? Well, that's a contingent reality that we better not speculate about, though I just did. But in the end, we cannot approve or disapprove of what David did with any certainty. It's impossible to say absolutely that what he did was right or whether or not there was some political machination that we might evaluate as wrong. But what we can say, right or wrong, faith or political calculation, God used this event to bring the line of the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, Jesus' own family, to the throne of Israel. So whether or not this was God's first choice or whether or not this is the, the grace of God at work through David's political machinations, whether or not this was entirely of faith or it was of faith and politics, it doesn't really matter. God used it to put the line of the Messiah on the throne. And herein lies take-home theology for us today. Number one, God's word will be done. God said it in Genesis 49. God did it in 1 Samuel 17. God's will 
shall be done, and his word will be fulfilled. And as you're reading through the Old Testament, you might ask yourself, well, how is that the way that God fulfilled his word? That's how God fulfilled his word. Secondly, what I, what I want to affirm in David is that he was walking by faith. Whether or not there was political machination in it or not, he was walking by faith, which changes what it means for us to walk by faith. Faith does not require detailed knowledge of God's mind. It requires action. You cannot walk by faith while standing still. We cannot read God's mind. We cannot weigh contingent realities. All we can do is act based on the promises of God, trusting that God is sovereign and God will work it out. So David stepped onto the battlefield and killed two giants with one stone. When he cut off Goliath's head, he simultaneously decapitated Saul's kingship. And through the long and winding road of 1 Samuel, we will see that God eventually worked everything out according to his ancient plan. Likewise for us then, walking by faith does not mean that we try to conjure up a sanctified version of Christian tarot cards. We don't try to say, God, what exactly do you want me to do? And we lay it out and we say, we pray and we, if, if we feel warm-hearted toward this and we do that, if we feel cold-hearted toward that, we don't do that. Uh, that's just not how it works. I'm not saying we don't pray, we pray. And we seek the Lord and, and we try to make decisions with wisdom. But at the end of the day, we cannot read God's mind. All we can do is seek the true promises of God and make decisions for ourselves and our families that seem to be in keeping with those promises. That's what David did. I know I'm going to be king. This seems to be in keeping with God's will for me. This seems to be a way in which I can ascend to the kingship. All we can do, likewise, is to act. Trusting that God will work it all out in the end, even if our motives are mixed. God put David on the throne through the slain of Goliath in spite of and because of his action. Likewise, God will work his will out for us in our life. He is sovereign. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the information. And we can even make mistakes and have mixed motives, and God will, by his sovereign grace, bring about his plan in our lives, both in spite of, and sometimes by his grace because of our action. And our actions, both righteous and sinful, will be used by God for God's glory. So let's not try to read God's mind. Let's know that God works all things together for good for those who trust him. I believe we sang about that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this chapter of history. And as we are exploring the depths of David, I pray that you would help us to come to terms with his faith and his uh, political cunning. And sometimes it seems like, oh, how do those two things go together? I thank you that you use us as you use David, often in spite of ourselves, that you bring your perfect plans to fruition. No one can thwart your word. You are the sovereign God of all things. No one can deny you your will, not even us. We take great comfort in that.
Now help us to walk and not stand still. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.